Turn your Bibles to Luke chapter 5. We're looking at two passages in the Lucan Gospel, Luke chapter 5 and Luke chapter 7. We have two stories that end in identical ways. A sermon entitled, God Alone. God Alone. Would you turn to Luke chapter 5 to begin with? Then in a moment, I'll ask you to move over to Luke chapter 7. Two stories from the Gospel of Luke, and they have the same ending. Look at Luke 5.20. Friend, your sins are forgiven you. And Luke 7.48, we'll look in a moment, you'd find these words. And he said to her, your sins have been forgiven. Words initially spoken to the paralytic who has been healed. In the second case, to the woman who anointed the feet of our Lord, the most powerful words ever to leave the lips of our Lord are, your sins have been forgiven. Aren't those words that we all long to hear? Isn't that what we want to hear Jesus say to us as well? Isn't that what Jesus has already said to you through his crucifixion and resurrection? Your sins are forgiven. <clears throat> Ernest Hemingway began one of his well-known short stories entitled The Capital of the World with the following lines. Madrid is full of boys named Paco which is diminutive for the name Francisco. And there is a Madrid joke about a father who came to Madrid and inserted an advertisement in the personal columns of El Liberal, which said, Paco, meet me at Hotel Montana, Tuesday at noon. All is forgiven, Papa and how a squadron of guards had to be called out to disperse 800 boys named Paco who responded to the advertisement. It's a joke about the popularity of the name Paco in Spain, but it only works because the underlining, underlying longing of so many of us to be forgiven by the Father. Two stories, one word, forgiven. The first story in Luke chapter 5, beginning verse 17. Jesus forgives the sins of a man. The second story in Luke 7, he forgives the sins of a woman. Well, let's look at the first story in Luke 5. Jesus is teaching, and the Pharisees have all gathered there. The teachers have all gathered there. They were listening, sitting and listening. They come to find out if all the claims about this rabbi from Galilee were real. Could he really heal? Could he cast out demons? And what was he teaching anyway, this new teaching about the kingdom of God? 
In verse 17, as he begins the story, Luke tells us that they were there from everywhere. There were folk there from Galilee. There were folk there from the wider region of Judea. And there were people there all the way to the capital of Jerusalem. They were all there that day to hear Jesus. They wanted to see if he would perform any miracles. And look at the end of verse 17. And the power of the Lord was present for him to perform healing. They were not disappointed. They had come to, to see Jesus with their own eyes. Could this rabbi from Galilee really heal? They'd come from all over and they were not disappointed. He had the power. The word there, dunamis, is a word from which we get our word dynamite. Jesus had the power of dynamite in healing all those who were who were sick. The multitude was growing and the leaders were discovering that Jesus indeed had the power to heal, to deliver from sickness. You can imagine the crowd gathered as Jesus is teaching about the kingdom of God and everyone is pushing for position to get their friend, their family member close enough to Jesus to be touched, to be touched by the hands that could clearly heal. They're all pushing. There's a paralyzed man there. Of course, he could do nothing without his friends. He had some very faithful friends. They realized there was no way to get close to Jesus that day. They could not part the crowd like Moses parted the Red Sea. But they were the kind of fellows who would not be stopped. They were not easily dissuaded. So the Instead of being discouraged, they decided to go up the exterior stairs to the roof of the house and they began removing the roof tiles to make a hole to lower the man right before the Lord as he taught. I've imagined Jesus in that scene teaching and all of a sudden he begins to hear some, some noise on the roof and tries to ignore it like you do when you're speaking and there's noise. He tries to keep going and then sunlight bursts into the room because they remove a roof tile and by now he looks up, maybe even some dust in his own face. He has clearly lost the audience and everybody's just looking up at the hole in the roof to see what's about to happen. Then paralytic is he's lowered look at verse 19 they lower him look at the end of verse 19 in front of Jesus they cut the hole in just the right place when they lowered the paralytic down he landed right in front of the Lord Jesus could see their faith they they knew they they had to be persistent to get him healed then Jesus says in verse 20 and seeing their faith not just the faith of the paralytic, but the faith of the paralytic and the four friends. Jesus says, your sins are forgiven you. Your sins are forgiven. Look how the scribes respond to verse 21. And the scribes and the Pharisees began to reason saying, who is this man who speaks blasphemies? Who can forgive sins? but God alone. Now the healings they were curious about and they were processing. And this new teaching about the kingdom of God having arrived, they were trying to make sense of that and what they had already been taught. 
But there was no way, no day, never would they ever accept the fact that this new rabbi had the authority like God to pardon sin. This was blasphemy. Only God has authority to pardon sin because all sin is ultimately against God alone. You remember the psalmist in Psalm 51, against you, O Lord, and you alone have I sinned and done this wickedness in your sight. Ultimately, no matter whom we've wronged, God ultimately is the only one who has the authority, at least in the eternal balances, to forgive, to pardon our sins. The Old Testament asserts over and over again that it is God who has the authority to forgive sins. Nathan the prophet says to David, the Lord has taken away your sin. Who? The Lord, David, has taken away your sin. You are not going to die, 2 Samuel 12. In verse 21, they shout the question of this entire Lucan gospel. Who is, who is this man, this rabbi from Galilee? Who is it that claims to have the authority to forgive sins? Who would yank from Yahweh this divine prerogative that only God can do in forgiving sins? Who is it that blasphemes? Look at the end of verse 21. For who can forgive sins? There's our title. But God alone. God alone can forgive sins. That's true. They were right. It's no small accusation. This accusation of blasphemy. It could have caused the stoning of our Lord. And Jesus now in verse 22 shows divine omniscience. But Jesus, aware of their reasoning, answered and said to them, why are you reasoning in your hearts? Which is it easier to say your sins have been forgiven or to say arise and walk? But in order that you may know the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, he said to the paralytic, I say to you, arise and take up your stretcher and go home. And at once he arose up before them and took up what he'd been lying on and went home glorifying God. And they were all seized with astonishment. And they began glorifying God and they were filled with fear saying, we have seen remarkable things today. I know what you're thinking, Jesus says in verse 22. But let me ask you a question. Is it easier for me to say to the man, your sins are forgiven? Or is it easier for me to say to the paralytic, arise and walk? The healing and forgiveness go like hand and glove all the way back to the ancient Jewish Psalter. When Psalm 103, we, we sing or we read, praise God who forgives all your sins and heals all your diseases. God forgives sins and heals diseases. They're hand in hand. Which is easier to say, I forgive sins or I heal your malady? Quite frankly, in one way it's easier to say your sins are forgiven because you can't really measure that. If I say your sins are forgiven, you can't really measure whether that's taken place or not. There's no proof in the pudding. If you say arise and walk, either he gets up, the paralytic, and walks, or he doesn't. So in some ways, some ways, 
It's easier to say your sins are forgiven for that's an internal action, an internal action. You get that? On the other hand, it is more difficult to say your sins are forgiven because the reality is there are a lot of men who can heal the body, a lot of physicians, but there's only one who forgives sins, and that is God alone. Which is easier to say? Well, you could make the argument both ways. But verse 24, I want you to know that the Son of Man, I want you to know that I have, like God, the authority to pardon sins. So I say, arise and take up and walk. I'll give you the proof in the pudding. Not only have I forgiven his sins, he shall walk before your eyes. Notice the obedience of the one healed in verse 25. He gets up and he walks and the people say, man, we are afraid. We have seen remarkable things today. It is a remarkable thing that Jesus has the power to pardon sins. Turn over to Luke chapter 7 verse 36 for story number 2. Now I want to tell you a second story. It's a story about a Pharisee named Simon and a woman who's a sinner. It's also a story like the one in Luke 5 about Jesus' power to pardon. It's a story that also rings the question of the text, who is Jesus? They ask in chapter 7, like they ask in chapter 5, who is this man who has the power to forgive sins? Well, look at chapter 7, verse 36. Now, one of the Pharisees was requesting Jesus to dine with him. He entered the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table. And behold, there was a woman in the city who was a sinner. And when she learned that Jesus was reclining at the table in the Pharisee's house, she brought an alabaster vial of perfume. Beginning in verse 36, we learn about a Pharisee named Simon who says to Jesus, I want you to dine in my house. Now, we've learned too much about Pharisees, at least the bad ones, in reading the Gospels that we miss the point of the story. The Pharisees were the good guys, not the bad guys, put on the white hat. They were laypersons who tried to keep every bit of the law. They devoted them li their lives to following the law. And so when the early readers read about a Pharisee, it would be the good guy. And besides, we would be wrong at the beginning of the story to cast all the evil things we learned about Pharisees in different texts onto this one Pharisee, for there were some Pharisees who were trying to be obedient in keeping the law of God. Paul was such a Pharisee. He persecuted the church, but not because he was evil, but because he was trying to be obedient to God. So we have a Pharisee, a good guy, wearing a white hat, whose name is Simon, and he invites Jesus to dine in his home, which would have been quite an invitation for Jesus. In those days when you ate, the table was in the center and you kind of leaned on your elbow, your head was at the table, there were couch-like pillows and your feet were away from the table. So imagine everybody leaning in and the feet out and a woman who is a sinner comes to the evening. 
lest you miss that she's a sinner, look at verse 37. A woman of the city who was a sinner. Look at verse 39. It says again, she was, the end of verse 39, she is a sinner. The chief identity of the main character of the story is that she is a sinner. She is a sinner. She's known as a sinner. Here's the woman. She's a sinner. That could be my definition, your definition. If we were in a biblical story, they would say, here's a man and he's a sinner. There you are and you're, you're a sinner. You see that? We are she in the story. Now you may say, why would Jesus accept an invitation to a Pharisee's house to dine? At the end of chapter 5, the portion we didn't look at, Jesus is in the home of a tax gatherer and he dines with sinners and tax gatherers who the Jews hated, the tax gatherers, because they were collecting money for Rome and they were cheats most often. So Jesus is dining in the home of sinners and tax gatherers, chapter 5, and the Pharisees stand outside and say, man, oh man, why is Jesus eating with tax gatherers and sinners? What in the world? How did he end up at that party? And then in chapter 7, we go, Pharisees, hypocrite in our mind, how is it that Jesus is now eating? The one who, who ate with the tax gatherers and sinners, how is he now eating in a hypocrite's house? Jesus ate with everybody, sinner or saint. You see, sometimes, now listen carefully. You want to write this one down and think about it on the way home. Sometimes, in our efforts to right wrongs, we have prejudice against those who have prejudices. And thus, we become just like they. Now, you think about that. Sometimes... In our efforts to right wrongs, we develop a prejudice against those who have prejudices, and thus, in shunning them, we have become as they. So Jesus, just like he went to eat with the tax gatherers and sinners, he goes to the Pharisee's house too. A very prejudicial man. While Jesus is at the home of this religious leader, remember Jesus himself is a religious leader. Jesus has disciples. The woman's a sinner. The drama intensifies. As Jesus is there at Simon's house, reclined with his elbow to the table, his feet sticking away from the table, all of a sudden a woman, a sinner, walks onto the stage of the text. She has an alabaster vial a common container for costly perfume. She began to weep on the feet of Jesus and wets his feet with her tears. She dries his feet, cleanses them with her hair. She breaks a vial of perfume, a costly perfume, and anoints his feet. She's sobbing. Why is she weeping? Weeping over the remorse of sins. There is no weeping like the weeping of repentance. There is no sobbing of the soul like the sorrow for sin. Her soul sobbed and her tears washed the feet of Jesus. She dried his feet with her hair. 
Now only a sinful woman would let her hair down. It could even be a cause of divorce. So we see more what kind of woman she is. She yields the contents of the alabaster vial on Jesus' feet. Now, feet in the first century were highly, highly offensive. To, to, the worst thing you do for your enemy was to what in the Psalter? Make him your footstool. Put your enemy under your stinky feet. There was dirt and dung on the streets. And in fact, John the Baptist says when it comes to Jesus, he's so holy, I'm not even worthy to untie the thong of his, his sandal. Feet were not highly thought of. Yet there are passages like Isaiah 52, this story reminds us of how beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of the one who announces peace, who brings good news. Jesus comes announcing peace and bringing good news. He's the one with beautiful feet of Isaiah 52. We announce your God reigns. You remember the women at the resurrection of Matthew 28? What do they grab? They grab Jesus' feet and worship him. Now, the Pharisee who's invited Jesus to his house, he thinks to himself, look at verse 39. Now, the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, and he said to himself, if this man were truly a prophet, he would know who and what sort of person this woman is who's touching his feet, that she's a sinner. I wondered about this, Jesus, Simon says. Now, no, he's not a real prophet. If he were the genuine deal, he would know the woman letting her hair down and weeping on his feet and touching his feet with the hair and the perfume, he would know she's a sinner, but he's not a prophet. He's clueless. Look what he's letting her do. He's ruining his reputation here. Jesus reading the minds in chapter 5 now in verse 40, reads the minds again. He says, Simon, I got something to say to you. You don't ever want to hear those words from Jesus. Simon, I got something to say to you. Simon's cocksure. Say it then, Lord. Say it. Let me tell you a story, Simon. There's one moneylender. And one of his debtor, debtors owes him 500 denarii. That's 18 months of wages. The other one owes him 50 denarii. They are both unable to pay. And he forgives them both. The little Greek text says he graced them. Isn't that beautiful forgiveness? 500 denarii, 50 denarii, 18 months, less than two months. And, and the money lender, of course, God graced them. Now, Simon, which one do you think loves him the most? I suppose, said Simon. Simon couldn't see Jesus' trap. The one that he forgave more. You're a smart one, Simon. You got it right. Then he turns to the woman. Jesus is a religious leader. Simon's a religious leader. And yet their responses to the woman could not be more different. The Pharisee was repelled by the woman because of her sin. And Jesus was drawn to the woman because of her sin. And he's thinking, if only Jesus knew. And Jesus says, I'm letting this take place because I do know. What kind of religious folk are we? Are we driven away when we hear the word sin or we run to when we hear the word sin? Simon, do you see this woman? Verse 44. Now, Simon had not treated Jesus as a social equal. He had not washed the feet of Jesus. 
nor had a servant washed the feet of Jesus. He had not given Jesus the customary kiss of an equal when the rabbi arrived. He had not anointed Jesus' head with oil either. And so Jesus says to Simon in the story, you didn't wash my feet, and yet she has washed my feet with her tears and dried them with her hair. Simon, you did not kiss my face, but the since the time I arrived, this woman has not ceased to kiss my feet. Simon, I don't remember you breaking out the vial of oil and anointing my head, and this woman has anointed my feet with costly perfume. So you're right, Simon. This woman has many sins, but she's been forgiven and she loves much. He who is forgiven little loves little. You don't need God a whole lot. You're not very grateful. Simon, the one who's been forgiven much, loves much. Then look at verse 48. And Jesus says to the woman, just like he said to the man, your sins are forgiven. It's a remarkable thing then and now that Jesus has the power to pardon sins. And they ask the same question, verse 49, look at the end. Who is this one who forgives sins? Only God can do that. Who is this rabbi? And then he says to the woman, Look at the end of verse 50. Go in peace. How can a woman like that go in peace? She can't go to the religious authorities. They've already made clear they have no room for a woman like that at their table. She can't go back out to the world. She'll fall into the same lifestyle that she was in before she comes to Jesus and she's been forgiven. Where does a woman like that go? This story cries out for a church, doesn't it? Uh, uh, the whole story cries out for a place. The whole story cries out for a people. A people like you and a, a people like me who stretch out our arms to those who seek the forgiveness of Jesus and say, peace right here in this place with this people. Peace is at First Baptist for you. You'll find the grace of God, forgiveness, and the love of a family. Go, come, and peace. Go in peace. This story demands a church. Two, two very different stories. One's a woman and one's a man. And they both end with the same words. You are forgiven. And the same question. Who is Jesus? Three things quickly from this text, and they're going to come rapid fire. Jesus has the authority to forgive sin. Both stories ask the question, who is this man? Either he's God, for only God can forgive sins, or he blasphemes. Jesus has forgiven your sins. Half the emotional issues we deal with could be eliminated overnight if you really believe that God has forgiven your sins the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. God has forgiven your sins. I don't know what sin you struggle with or what memories in the past that haunt you and somehow you think your sin is different. <laughs> your sin is not more powerful than the crucifixion of our Christ. I can tell you that. Your 
sins have been forgiven. Number two, the question really is, who is Jesus? It happens in Luke 5, it happens in Luke 7, it happens in Luke 8, it happens in Luke 9. It looms large in Luke. The question is, who is this rabbi? The answer is, he's God. Finally, when we're forgiven by Jesus, we love more. When we are forgiven by Jesus, we love more. When you realize you're a sinner just like everybody else, you treat sinners differently, don't you? Two stories in exactly the same way. You think Luke is doing this haphazardly? He's saying, I don't care who you are, a paralytic, a sinful woman, a man, a woman, Every good story with Jesus ends the same way. Your sins are forgiven. Every good story with Jesus ends the same way. God graces you and you're forgiven. Your story is just like the man's story and the woman's story. And Jesus ends your story by saying the same words. You are forgiven. Let's pray. Oh God, their story is our story. We hear the word of the Lord today as we confess our sins, as we sob with our souls like the woman as we have faith like the man, our sins are forgiven. And we're grateful. Amen.